Chapter eighty nine of The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Last Canto of the Poem. On the morrow, all the noblesse of the provinces, of the environs, and wherever messengers had carried the news, might have been seen arriving in detachments. D'Artagnan had shut himself up without being willing to speak to anybody. Two such heavy deaths falling upon the captain so closely after the death of Porthos for a long time oppressed that spirit which had hitherto been so indefatigable and invulnerable. Except Grimaud, who entered his chamber once, the musketeer saw neither servants nor guests. He supposed from the noises in the house and the continual coming and going that preparations were being made for the funeral of the comte. He wrote to the king to ask for an extension of his leave of absence. Grimaud, as we have said, had entered D'Artagnan's apartment, had seated himself upon a joint stool near the door, like a man who meditates profoundly. Then rising, he made a sign to D'Artagnan to follow him. The latter obeyed in silence. Grimaud descended to the comte's bedchamber, showing the captain with his finger the place of the empty bed, and raised his eyes eloquently towards heaven. "'Yes,' replied D'Artagnan. "'Yes, good Grimaud, now with the son he loved so much.' Grimaud left the chamber, and led the way to the hall where, according to the custom of the province, the body was laid out, previously to being put away forever. D'Artagnan was struck at seeing two open coffins in the hall, in reply to the mute invitation of Grimaud, he approached and saw in one of them Athos, still handsome in death, and in the other, Raoul with his eyes closed, his cheeks pearly as those of the Pauls of Virgil, with a smile on his violet lips. He shuddered at seeing the father and son, those two departed souls, represented on earth by two silent, melancholy bodies incapable of touching each other however close they may be raoul here murmured he oh grimaud why did you not tell me this grimaud shook his head and made no reply but taking d'artagnan by the hand he led him to the coffin and showed him under the thin winding sheet the black wounds by which life had escaped the captain turned away his eyes, and judging it was useless to question Grimaud, who would not answer, he recollected that M. de Beaufort's secretary had written more than he, D'Artagnan, had had the courage to read. Taking up the recital of the affair which had cost Raoul his life, he found these words which ended the concluding paragraph of the letter. Monseigneur le Duc has ordered that the body of M. le Vicomte should be embalmed, after the manner practiced by the Arabs when they wish their dead to be carried to their native land, and Monsieur le Duc has appointed relays, so that the same confidential servant who brought up the young man might take back his remains to Monsieur le Comte de la Fere. And so, thought D'Artagnan, I shall follow thy funeral, my dear boy. I, already old, I who am of no value on earth. And I shall scatter dust upon that brow I kissed but two months since. 
God has willed it to be so. Thou hast willed it to be so thyself. I have no longer the right even to weep. Thou hast chosen death. It seemed to thee a preferable gift to life. At length arrived the moment when the chill remains of these two gentlemen were to be given back to Mother Earth. There was such an affluence of military and other people that up to the place of the sepulchre, which was a little chapel on the plain, the road from the city was filled with horsemen and pedestrians in mourning. Athos had chosen for his resting place the little enclosure of a chapel erected by himself near the boundary of his estates. He had had the stones cut in 1550, brought from an old Gothic manor house in Barry, which had sheltered his early youth. The chapel, thus rebuilt, transported, was pleasing to the eye beneath its leafy curtains of poplars and sycamores. It was ministered in every Sunday by the curé of the neighboring burg, to whom Athos paid an allowance of two hundred francs for his service, and all the vassals of his domain, with their families, came thither to hear mass without having any occasion to go to the city. Behind the chapel extended, surrounded by two high hedges of hazel, elder and white thorn, and a deep ditch. The little enclosure, uncultivated though gay in its sterility, because the mosses there grew thick, wild heliotrope and ravenels there mingled perfumes, while from beneath an ancient chestnut issued a crystal spring, a prisoner in its marble cistern, and on the time all around alighted thousands of bees from the neighboring plants, whilst chaffinches and red-throats sang cheerfully among the flower-spangled hedges. It was to this place the sombre coffins were carried, attended by a silent and respectful crowd. The office of the dead being celebrated, the last adieu paid to the noble departed, the assembly dispersed, talking along the roads of the virtues and mild death of the father, of the hopes the son had given, and of his melancholy end upon the arid coast of Africa. Little by little, all noises were extinguished like the lamps illuminating the humble nave. The minister bowed for the last time to the altar and the still fresh graves. Then, followed by his assistant, he slowly took the road back to the presbytery. D'Artagnan left alone, perceived that night was coming on. He had forgotten the hour, thinking only of the dead. He arose from the oaken bench on which he was seated in the chapel and wished, as the priest had done, to go and bid a last adieu to the double grave which contained his two lost friends. A woman was praying, kneeling on the moist earth. D'Artagnan stopped at the door of the chapel to avoid disturbing her, and also to endeavor to find out who was the pious friend who performed this sacred duty with so much zeal and perseverance. The unknown had hidden her face in her hands, which were white as alabaster. From the noble simplicity of her costume she must be a woman of distinction. Outside the enclosure were several horses mounted by servants, a traveling carriage was in waiting for this lady. D'Artagnan in vain sought to make out what caused her delay. She continued praying and frequently pressed her handkerchief to her face, by which D'Artagnan perceived she was weeping. He beheld her strike her breast with the compunction of a Christian woman. He heard her several times exclaim as from a wounded heart, Pardon! Pardon! 
and as she appeared to abandon herself entirely to her grief, as she threw herself down, almost fainting, exhausted by complaints and prayers, D'Artagnan, touched by this love for his so much regretted friends, made a few steps towards the grave in order to interrupt the melancholy colloquy of the penitent with the dead. But as soon as his steps sounded on the gravel, the unknown raised her head, revealing to D'Artagnan a face, a flood with tears, a well-known face. It was Mademoiselle de la Valliere. "'Monsieur D'Artagnan?' murmured she. "'You,' replied the captain in a stern voice, "'you here? Oh, madame, I should better have liked to see you decked with flowers in the mansion of the Comte de la Fere. You would have wept less, and they too, and I.' "'Monsieur,' said she, sobbing, "'for it was you,' added this pitiless friend of the dead, "'it was you who sped these two men to the grave.' "'Oh, spare me!' "'God forbid, madame, that I should offend a woman, "'or that I should make her weep in vain, "'but I must say that the place of the murderer "'is not upon the grave of her victims.' "'She wished to reply.' "'What I now tell you,' added he coldly, "'I have already told the king.' She clasped her hands. "'I know,' said she. "'I have caused the death of the Vicomte de Bragelonne.' "'Ha! You know it!' "'The news arrived at court yesterday. "'I have traveled during the night forty leagues "'to come and ask pardon of the Comte.' whom I suppose to be still living, and to pray God on the tomb of Raoul, that he would send me all the misfortunes I have merited, except a single one. Now, monsieur, I know that the death of the son has killed the father. I have two crimes to reproach myself with. I have two punishments to expect from heaven. I will repeat to you, mademoiselle, said D'Artagnan, what Monsieur de Bragelonne said of you at Antibes, when he already meditated death. If pride and coquetry have misled her, I pardon her while despising her. If love has produced her error, I pardon her, but I swear that no one could have loved her as I have done. You know, interrupted Louise, that of my love I was about to sacrifice myself. You know whether I suffered when you met me lost, dying, abandoned. Well, never have I suffered so much as now, because then I hoped, desired. Now I have no longer anything to wish for, because this death drags all my joy into the tomb, because I can no longer dare to love without remorse, and feel that he whom I love... Oh, it is but just, will repay me with the tortures I have made others undergo. D'Artagnan made no reply. He was too well convinced that she was not mistaken. Well, then, added she, dear Monsieur D'Artagnan, do not overwhelm me today. I again implore you. I am like the branch torn from the trunk. I no longer hold to anything in this world. A current drags me on, I know not whither, 
I love madly, even to the point of coming to tell it, wretch that I am, over the ashes of the dead, and I do not blush for it. I have no remorse on this account. Such love is a religion. Only, as hereafter you will see me alone, forgotten, disdained, as you will see me punished, as I am destined to be punished, spare me in my ephemeral happiness. Leave it to me for a few days, for a few minutes. Now, even at the moment I am speaking to you, perhaps it no longer exists. My God, this double murder is perhaps already expiated. While she was speaking thus, the sounds of voices and of horses drew the attention of the captain. Monsieur de Saint-Aignan came to seek La Valliere. The king, he said, is a prey to jealousy and uneasiness. Saint-Aignan did not perceive D'Artagnan, half concealed by the trunk of a chestnut tree which shaded the double grave. Louise thanked Saint-Aignan and dismissed him with a gesture. He rejoined the party outside the enclosure. "'You see, madame,' said the captain bitterly to the young woman, "'you see your happiness still lasts.' The young woman raised her head with a solemn air. "'A day will come,' said she, "'when you will repent of having so misjudged me. "'On that day it is I who will pray God "'to forgive you for having been unjust toward me. "'Besides, I shall suffer so much "'that you yourself will be the first to pity my sufferings. "'Do not reproach me with my fleeting happiness, Monsieur d'Artagnan. "'It costs me dear, and I have not paid all my debt.' "'Saying these words,' She again knelt down softly and affectionately. "'Pardon me, the last time, my affianced Raoul,' said she. "'I have broken our chain. We are both destined to die of grief. It is thou who departest first. Fear nothing. I shall follow thee. See only that I have not been base.' and that I have come to bid thee this last adieu. The Lord is my witness, Raoul, that if with my life I could have redeemed thine, I would have given that life without hesitation. I could not give my love. Once more, forgive me, dearest, kindest friend. She strewed a few sweet flowers on the freshly sodded earth, then wiping the tears from her eyes, the heavily stricken lady bowed to D'Artagnan and disappeared. The captain watched the departure of the horses, horsemen, and carriage, then crossing his arms upon his swelling chest. "'When will it be my turn to depart?' said he in an agitated voice. "'What is there left for man? After youth, love.' Glory, friendship, strength, and wealth have disappeared. That rock under which sleeps Porthos, who possessed all I have named. This moss under which repose Athos and Raoul, who possessed much more. He hesitated for a moment, with a dull eye, then drawing himself up. Forward, still forward, said he.
when it is time god will tell me as he foretold the others he touched the earth moistened with the evening dew with the ends of his fingers signed himself as if he had been at the benetier in church and retook alone ever alone the road to paris end of chapter 89 recording by john van stan savannah georgia